0: You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this afternoon is evolutionary biologist Jerry Coyne. Um, among other works, Jerry is the author of Why Evolution Is True and Fact versus Faith: Why Science and Religion Are Incompatible. Um, with Alan Orr, he's also written a textbook on speciation, uh, which I believe was your particular is your particular specialist field of interest, Jerry, is that correct?
1: Yes, Yes, it is.
0: Um, And he has an ongoing uh, blog, which I highly recommend, also called Why Evolution is True. Um, And I think that your blog is, um, I would say that you have one of the best uh, calibrated and most acute bullshitometers (laughs) of anybody I know in the field. So generally when I wonder whether as, as an alternative uh, theory might have some weight to it, I uh, in that field I generally go to look to see what you have said about it. No, thank you. Because you just seem to have so much good sense. Um, that's my impression. And I would I I highly recommend both your um, well, you've written several books, but both the books, "Why Evolution Is True" and "Faith Versus Fact." I. Um, i re- I read both of them within the p- past couple of weeks, and I think the reason I held off on reading them is that i have i already am totally convinced by evolution and also i've I've read a lot of popular science slash science communication books on evolutionary biology, so I thought perhaps I wouldn't learn very much more from them, but I was quite wrong they are um, you're an absolutely beautiful writer and they're just written with the most d- delicious eloquence and clarity. So I think even for people, even if you um, didn't learn, learn any new facts from the book, it would, it's just an enormous pleasure to read the arguments being made so clearly. Um, you just have a lovely way with examples also, but um I think they both remain absolutely important works, and I would recommend them to everyone. Well, thank so you. So thank you so much. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, the reason I wrote the, the Why Evolution is True book is because there wasn't any equivalent book in the field laying out the events for evolution um, for the layperson. So uh, Richard Dawkins, at the time I wrote it, also wrote a similar one. I mean, a book on a similar topic. The evidence for evolution, fortunately, our books, which came out about the same time, are very different. So I didn't want to have to compete with Richard. But, yeah, I mean, the reason I wrote it is because I taught in my class, um, my evolution class. I always started off saying, well, I'm going to teach you about evolution. But before we start about how it works, I want to give you the evidence that there was indeed evolution. And when I started writing those lectures way, way back in the early 80s, I realized there was no source I could go to that had a compendium of all the evidence revolution for the general public i e for my students who were first years and um I decided eventually that I'd have to write that book, which is what i did and as far as I know there's you know there are websites which compile evidence, but there's still no equivalent book um now, a lot of lay people know the evidence. I don't think they know it in the kind of detail that I give in the book. But it's no. certainly not aimed at people who are already convinced that evolution is true. It's aimed at people on the fence, um, people religious people who doubt evolution but have an open mind, or science friendly people who just want to know why scientists all accept evolution.
0: I think it's also, um, there's also something very pleasurable in uh about reading a book which is arguing a case that you already agree with but arguing that case much better than you could usually argue it um i felt that it gave me a lot of ammunition um extremely effective ammunition and i f- um and some things which i thought i understood but um i now understand in a much more detailed and, and clear way
1: well, that means I did my job with respect to you. So, thank you.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. Do you think, um, do you think public perceptions of uh, evolution have changed since you since you wrote those books? Um, what are the most? I mean, what would you say are the most persistent misunderstandings of evolution among the general public, even today?
1: Oh, there's, I mean, I could go on forever about that, so I'll just list a few. Um, well, the first, of course, is that there's no evidence for evolution, that it is a sort of conspiracy theory of scientists, atheistic scientists, I suppose, who want to do down religion. That, of course, is dispelled in the book, um, that evolution is a random phenomenon, and that's one of the most common misconceptions, perhaps the most common misconception about evolution, that everything happens by accident in evolution, which is a gross misconception um, of how at least adaptive evolution, as Adam Brayer by Darwin um, works. It's a combination of a random process, which is mutation, and the winnowing of that variation that arises through mutation by a non-random process which is natural selection. Natural selection isn't even really a process. I hate to describe it as something that's imposed on organisms from the outside. It's just something that happens when different forms of genes have different abilities to replicate. That's a point that Richard Dawkins has tried to make throughout his career. Um, and I'll just give a couple more that um, evolution occurs within a species individuals. That is, an individual evolves over time. So the whole species changes in a generation, within a generation from one thing to another. And that's called a, um, a transformational process. And it's not the way evolution works. It's variational. That is, the composition of a population changes over many generations. So, you know, it's important to understand that variational nature of the process. And finally, that evolution operates for the good of the species. That's another very widespread misconception, that um, evolution installs features in organisms that help the species survive or perpetuate itself. And that, again, is generally, I mean, in rare occasions that might be the case, but that's not how it works either. So those are the sort of major misconceptions about the process.
0: Mm, Yeah, Um, that kind of evolution is a tinkerer rather than a designer, as you put it.
1: Yeah, um, that's Richard Dawkins' point. I think you know. I mean, I think Jacques Monod, who was not even an evolutionary biologist, won the Nobel Prize for molecular biology. Said evolution is a tinkerer. Anybody that studies evolution realizes that because it's dependent on the vagaries of variation that crops up by mutation
0: yeah absolutely i mean my housemate who has just had treatment for hernia knows all about this um hernias are uh well you explain that in the book as an example the inguinal hernias could you talk about that
1: yeah actually i had one uh within (laughs) the last two years two of them actually the same one recurred so i experienced it as well it's just that um, our guts or our intestines have not adapted to a vertical um, posture. So in animals that are horizontal, you know, the guts are well supported by a horizontal bands of musculature. But when you stand up, that support is no longer there. And there's also, and there's also an imperfection involved. That is, when your testicles descend, um, it leaves a sort of hole in your gut. In, the inner, in your innards where the intestines could come through if you strain yourself. So, yeah, there's several design flaws there. That's another misconception about evolution, by the way, that evolution produces perfection. And it doesn't, and it, in fact, it can't produce perfection because there are so many different ways to adapt so many different things that you have to deal with when you talk about an organism in nature they have to be able to eat they have to be able to run away from predators they have to be camouflaged they have to defend themselves that it's impossible to optimize every one of those features when you make an improvement in one thing you usually sacrifice something else so evolution makes you better than you were and when i say better i mean able to leave more offspring than the previous generations, but it does not produce absolute perfection. It can come close in some cases, like m- in mimicry. There are organisms that are so good at matching their surroundings, like oct- octopuses or octopi. I think octopuses is right. They can change their coloration so that they're almost completely invisible. So there are some forms of evolution by natural selection that can produce something pretty close to optimum or perfection but in general that's not the case
0: mm. yeah you give some lovely examples in the book for example um certain species of turtle um and the female turtles come onto the beach to lay their eggs and they bury they bury their eggs in the sand um and they they have to use their flippers to um to scoop out the sand, and that's very inefficient. Flippers are very, very bad at digging, but they can't evolve if they evolved uh, appendages that were better at digging. They would therefore they would not be able to swim as well. Flippers are are better for swimming. So there's always these uh, there are always trade offs.
1: Yes, almost always. I can't think of a trait that doesn't have some kind of trade off, with the possible exception of mimicry um for some organisms not for all so yeah i mean we're we do the best we can and any change in an organism's genome that makes it better able to leave more offspring will be the one that perpetuates itself but that change can make other changes worse so we're just a compromise between forces pulling at each other but you know over time you can generally get better, and by better, again, the currency of evolution by natural selection is the number of copies of your genes that you leave. That's another thing. Darwin's theory is often characterized as survival of the fittest. You hear this all the time, Um, and I explain to my students that that's uh, not exactly correct, that survival is only one part of being able to leave an offspring you have to survive to leave an offspring but you can survive and not leave any offspring like me for example Um, so you know the number of offspring is important and how good those offspring are the genes they carry that enable them to leave offspring and so on and the other misconception is uh, survival of the fittest the the term fittest e-s-t implies perfection or optimization whereas it's fitter. So I characterize uh, evolution by natural selection as reproduction of the fitter rather than survival of the fittest.
0: Yeah. And it's also dependent on, as you say in the book, both of there being the, the correct mutation available. So you give the example of um, African rhinos have two horns um, and Indian rhinos only have one. And it's probably better to have two horns.
1: Well, we're not sure, um, you know. <laughs> you know, uh, that's a classic example that my advisor Dick Lewington used to use as an example of sort of a, a kind of adaptation whose features are molded partly by accident. We don't know whether a two-horned rhino is better than a one-horned rhino. Um, I don't know how you'd even test that. <laughs> it certainly looks like it could defend itself better, but maybe it couldn't. You know, maybe you could have a bigger horn if you had one horn instead of two. so um, judging all these things is actually quite difficult. All we know is that horns are probably good on rhinoceroses, so.
0: Yeah, and you I mean, you have to choose between the mutations you have available. If the mutation never occurs, then then you won't have that trait.
1: Yeah, and I can think of a fair number of mutations that would be useful.
0: <laughs> um
1: well for example, any mutation in humans that uh, makes either males bigger and stronger because bigger and stronger males are in general selected more by women as mates would probably be an advantage. There are two reasons. First of all, we may have those mutations may not be possible simply because a mutation that does that may have trade-offs that make it worse in the long run. By being bigger and stronger, you may lose things like longevity, for example, or mm-hmm. the ability to make sperm. So, you know, we just don't know. You can certainly make modifications of organisms that make them better. For example, you can put um, orange leg bands on some birds that make them more attractive to females, and yet these birds have not developed, well, not, they can't develop leg bands, but they're, they haven't developed orange legs either. So there's an, any number of mutations that we think would improve an organism, but mutation is a, is a random process. And by random, we have a very specific meaning for that, which is not that every gene is equally likely to mutate or that any kind of mutation is equally likely to occur. What we mean is when a mutation occurs, it does it is completely irrespective with what? respect to whether or not it improves the reproductive ability of an organism. They're just accidents, and they're not biased in one direction or another. Most of them are bad, granted, because they're a change in a well-adapted organism. But when we say random, it means that the mutation is no more likely to be good for the organism's reproduction than it is to be bad. It's, in fact, more likely to be bad, so...
0: One of my favourite parts of your book uh, was the detailed explanation of how speciation works, and um, as as you point out, although Darwin's book is called On the Origin of Species, he actually has um, re- he had a relatively poor understanding of how speciation works. And we've since then been able to explain in much more detail what that process is like. I'm going to read a little tiny excerpt from uh, Why Evolution is True, also to give listeners a sense of of how you write. Um, And um, then maybe you could talk in a little bit more detail about um, how speciation happens as opposed to other elements of evolution. Um, Let me find the. Oh, yeah, this is a lovely. um, um, Here we go. Speciation was so important to Darwin that he made it the title of his most famous book. And that book did give some evidence for the splitting. The only diagram in the whole of the, the origin is a hypothetical evolutionary tree. But it turns out that Darwin didn't really explain how new species arose for lacking any knowledge of genetics he never really understood that explaining species means explaining barriers to gene exchange. Real understanding of how speciation occurs began only in the 1930s. It stands to reason that if the history of life forms a tree, with all species originating from a single trunk, then one can find a common origin for every pair of twigs, existing species, by tracing each twig back through its branches until they intersect at the branch they have in common. This node is their common ancestor. And if life began with one species and split into millions of descendant species through a branching process, it follows that every pair of species share a common ancestor sometime in the past. Closely related species, like closely related people, had a common ancestor that lived fairly recently, While the common ancestor of more distantly related species, like that of distant human relatives, lived further back in the past. Thus, the idea of common ancestry, the fourth tenet of Darwinism, in this part of the book, you lay out the six tenets of of Darwinism, uh, is the flip side of speciation. It simply means that we can always look back in time using either DNA sequences of fossils or, sorry, using either DNA sequences or fossils and find descendant lineages fusing at their ancestors. Let's examine one evolutionary tree, that of vertebrates. On this tree, I've put some of the features that biologists use to deduce evolutionary relationships. For a start, fish, amphibians, mammals and reptiles all have a backbone. They are vertebrates, so they must have descended from a common ancestor that also had vertebrae. And I'll put the accompanying figure into the show notes. Um, But within vertebrates, reptiles and mammals are united and distinguished from fish and amphibians by having an amniotic egg, the embryo surrounded by by a fluid-filled membrane called the amnion. So reptiles and mammals must have had a more recent common ancestor that itself possessed such an egg. But this group also contains two subgroups, one with species that all have hair, are warm-blooded, and produce milk, that is mammals, and another with species that are cold-blooded, scaly, and produce watertight eggs, that is reptiles. Like all species, these form a nested hierarchy, a hierarchy in which big groups of species, whose members share a few traits, are subdivided into smaller groups of species, sharing more traits, and so on, down to species like black bears and grizzly bears that share nearly all their traits. The nested arrangement of life was recognised long before Darwin. Starting with the Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus in 1735, biologists began classifying animals and plants, discovering that they consistently fell into what was called a natural classification. Strikingly, different biologists came up with nearly identical groupings. This means that these groupings are not subjective artifacts of a human need to classify, but they tell us something real and fundamental about nature. But nobody knew what that something was until Darwin came along and showed that the nested arrangement of life is precisely what evolution predicts. Creatures with recent common ancestors share many traits, while those whose common ancestors lay in the distant past are more dissimilar. The natural classification itself is strong evidence for evolution. Why? Because we don't see a nested arrangement if we're trying to arrange objects that haven't arisen by an evolutionary process of splitting and descent. Take cardboard board books of matches, which I used to collect. They don't fall into a natural classification in the same way as living species. You could, for example, sort matchbooks hierarchically, beginning with size and then by country within size and then by country within size, color within country and so on. Or you could start with a type of product advertised, sorting thereafter by color and then by date. There are many ways to order them and everyone will do it differently. There is no sorting system that all collectors agree on. This is because, rather than evolving so that each matchbook gives rise to another that is only slightly different, each design was created from scratch by human whim. Matchbooks resemble the kinds of creatures expected under creationist explanation of life. In such a case, organisms would not have common ancestry but would simply result from an instantaneous creation of forms designed de novo to fit their environments. Under this scenario, we wouldn't expect to see species falling into a nested hierarchy of forms that is recognized by all biologists. Um, I'll stop there. You go on to talk about how um, DNA analysis now backs up the old, the old, um, uh, the old ideas which were based on observing visible features of organisms and behavior. Um, And you talk about the kinds of predictions that we can make um, on the basis of this, but just to give people a taste of, of the book, um, could you um, say a little more about what uh, people misunderstand about speciation? So one definition that I hear lay people saying a lot is that two species are Uh, animals form two species if they um, cannot have fertile offspring. But your definition is a bit more subtle and precise than that.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what I said, Um, but it would be something like two animals are members of different species if they meet in nature under natural conditions and are unable to produce fertile offspring. And there's a variety of reasons why they might not. They might not like each other's looks. That's called sexual isolation. They might like each other's looks, but be stick cross-sterile, for example, um, humans and chimpanzees. The experiment, unsavory as it is, has been done, and humans and chimpanzees cannot, even when they one inseminates the other, they, they can't produce an offspring. Um, Or they could produce an offspring, but the offspring itself is sterile. That's the classic case of the uh, mule, which is a hybrid between the two different species, horse and donkey. Um, Or, I mean, there's many different things that keep members of different species apart. And remember, they have to be given the test of encountering each other in nature. So if you have two things that look slightly different on islands on either side of the globe, Um, You cannot tell if they're different species. Even if you bring them into the zoo and they produce a fertile offspring, that doesn't tell you that they're the same species. Because in nature, the zoo is not nature. It's an enforced habituation of two animals together. So the only way to really test whether organisms are different species is, well, there's two ways. One way is to see if they meet in nature and do not hybridize which is the case for humans and chimpanzees and gorillas, or for um, the cardinal in America, the cardinal, the robin, and the bluebird. Or you bring them together in the zoo, and that you can make a hybrid, but that hybrid is sterile or is deformed or something. That would certainly happen in nature if they were to meet. And so it's it's sort of a one-way test of speciation. So all these barriers that keep species when they meet each other in nature from producing a fertile offspring, and I emphasize it has to be fertile, can't be a mule, are called reproductive isolating barriers. And this is the problem of speciation that Darwin failed to grasp in his book. How can you take a single population or a single species of organisms? What process would divide that into two different populations that are unable, even when they coexist in the same area, to produce fertile offspring. So that's one of the reasons that Darwin failed to explain the origin of species. We now have a pretty good idea of how that happens. I'm not sure that you. I want to bore you with a long description, because that's the topic of my first book, the one that I'm actually proudest of, my sort of academic book, Speciation. And it's 500 pages long. <laughs> I do want to emphasize, however, that, again, another mistake Darwin made is he didn't know what a species was. If you don't conceive of species as groups that are unable to interbreed successfully with each other, then you can't explain the problem of speciation. You have to have a good conception of what it is. And Darwin didn't. In some places, he just resorted to saying, well, a species is what a good taxonomist calls a species, (laughs) he basically defaulted on the definition. Um, The definition of species I gave about an organism or a population being unable to produce fertile hybrids or offspring with another population a different species where they coexist is what we call the biological species definition, and it has existed since about the 1930s. It's when that definition came into currency, that we suddenly realize, yes, we can understand how species form. That devolves to the problem of how do we get these reproductive barriers between different populations. So, that realization, which started with a conception, I don't say definition because it didn't come out of human heads, it's our attempt to see what's going on in nature. That conception is what gave rise to our ability now to answer the problem that eluded Darwin. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much. I really want to read your your first book now. Um, so one of the startling things for me when I was reading the Faith versus Fact book is how high the proportion of people is um, in the in the US and even in the UK, which shocks me, um, who don't still don't accept um, evolution. Or accept a weak or kind of um version of evolution, um, of evolutionary theory, because of their religious belief. Do you see that still playing out actively in within politics? Um, oh yeah, and-
1: absolutely. It's just that people don't talk about it. Um, during the last election, did you ever hear anybody ask Donald Trump whether he accepted evolution? No. No. <laughs> uh, in that election, I'm not sure if. Uh, it might have been Barack Obama's first election when they had the Republican candidates debating, they asked them to raise their hands if they uh, didn't accept evolution. And the, the majority of them, I think it was like nine out of the 11 or whatever, raised their hands. So it's a pervasive um, trade in America. And as you said, it's connected with evolution. Um, this is, this cannot be emphasized strongly enough. The only reason that people reject evolution in America um, and throughout the world, I believe, is the pervasiveness of religion, which tells us that that humans are something special. We're not part of the evolutionary nexus that started four billion years ago. We can't have that. You know, Islam, Judaism, all the Abrahamic religions are explicitly human exceptionalist religions. So you'll find this boulderized version all over the place. Even in Muslims, I had a cab driver that took me to the airport a couple of years ago that asked me what I thought about evolution. He didn't know I was an evolutionary biologist. (laughs) He wanted to talk about it. And, you know, I knew, well, first of all, I didn't want to get into a big argument about this. But it turned out that he thought that humans were created, but everything else had evolved. And that's a very widespread view in America, although it's not the predominant view. The predominant view is still everything was created. But there are a lot of people that say that, um, I think it's probably about 20% to 30% of Americans say that um, evolution happened, but a divine force stuck his, her, or its hand into the process at some point. And the point that it, the hand is usually stuck in is where humans came in. That is, everything evolved, but humans could not have evolved. Why? Because we're made in the image of God, so God had, had to have do, done something to help the process along with humans. But no, I mean, I'm still stuck in a country where about 40% of my fellow Americans are straight biblical creationists. They think that... Um, Humans were created by God within the last 10,000 years, and so was everything else. So when I walk down the street, and I'm, especially when I'm teaching evolution, I think this, I realize that four out of every 10 people I pass completely reject what I'm teaching my students as the scientific truth. And it's all because of religion. There would be no reason to question evolution if there wasn't religion, um, because that's the only Reason I can see for rejecting this mountain of scientific evidence that's in my book, straight. I've only met in my in the hundreds of thousands of creationists I've met in my career, in my talks. People that write me. People come up to me. I've never met one of them who wasn't at bottom motivated by religious belief. So, although you can have some religions without creation, you know, like. There are some religions like Unitarian Universalists or Quakers that accept evolution. You cannot have creationism without religion, so it's it's all a problem of religion. And let me just make an aside here. I think that's realizing this that I never met a creationist who wasn't religious. That made me start thinking about writing my second book, which is about the incompatibility between science and religion. And I think that's one reason why Richard Dawkins uh, wrote The God Delusion, <laughs> because he had spent his whole life telling people the marvels and the facts about evolution and being rejected again and again and again on, because of religious people. At, a, at some point, you get fed up with this, and you sort of want to go after those features of religion that block people from accepting evolution. So I think that's the reason for the pardon the word genesis of my second book, Faith versus Fact.
0: Yeah. It feels to me as though um, you know, at some point in history the sticking point was um the the earth going round the sun, um, and um the fact that our planet is not the center of some Ptolemaic universe. Um, that was a, that was a problem for people because of religious teachings. Um, and we got past that. And now the kind of sticking point of conflict between science and religion is the idea that human beings weren't a special creation, that human beings aren't some kind of exceptional, um, some kind of exception to the rule of, um, of the kind of scientific and rational nature of the universe.
1: Yeah, that's a sticking point. I mean, that's not my main argument in Faith versus mm. Fact about their incompatibility, but it instantiates the incompatibility. Um, because, and I found, I, Many years ago for the BBC, I participated in a program called Creationist Road Trip, where they took a number of British creationists, I think it was about a dozen, and they put them on a big bus, and they took them all around America, introducing them to evolutionary biologists. Um, For example, they took me to Lake Mead to talk to these creationists about the uh, foolishness of the ark myth the idea that all the animals were on an ark for 40 days and what we see left on earth today are the animals that got off the ark after the waters receded. You know, well, I didn't convince them of it. <laughs> what it really convinced them at the end and they didn't, by no means did all of them convinced, but several of them got very uncomfortable. What really made them most uncomfortable was Tim White at Berkeley who lined up in chronological order a series of, of casts of of early hominin skulls, all the way from 4 million years ago to osteopithecines to modern Homo sapiens. And if you see them all lined up like that, and you know that you're not doing this, you know, you're lining them up just in strict chronological order defined by radiometric dating or other kinds of dating. And you see this change over time in our own group. It's really, really hard to reject human evolution when you do that. And it is that, it is that line of skulls that, more than anything else, made these creationists think twice about their dogma. Only a few of them became a little bit wary. I'm not sure that any of them actually did change their mind. I think one of them did, but that at least changed their mind about human exceptionalism. Mm, yeah. Wow. So
0: wonderful demonstration um i one of the things that i was uh not not very aware of until i read the faith versus fact book um was the extent to which um even scientists even scientists themselves including evolutionary biologists um try to make common cause with certain religious groups um at uh against um out and out creationists and some of the really um dodgy compromises that are made in that regard. And in particular I was very struck by your account of the role of the Templeton Foundation. Could you talk more about that for
1: about- About the Templeton Foundation? Yes, yes. Yes, well, the Templeton Foundation, it's changed a little bit in the past years. They used to support intelligent design, which is a form of creationism. And they realized that that was a no-go because scientists fully rejected intelligent design, and the courts rejected it as well. But John Templeton, Sir John Templeton, who made his money in hedge funds, um, the Templeton Funds, um, I used to invest in those years ago before I realized what them was about and then moved to the Bahamas as a tax haven. He left his billions of dollars for one purpose, to, found, to form these foundations that he thought would show that the more we learn scientifically, the more evidence we get for God or for the divine. So he thought that by funding scientists to study various things like free will or altruism or whatever, that scientists would move closer and closer to accepting religion. Now this hasn't happened. <laughs> you know? Scientists are more atheistic than they ever were, and creationists are pretty much as creationists as they ever were. So, you know, Templeton is an example of a failed experiment. There's others as well, where lots of money is thrown at the problem of scientists being a religious and religious people distrusting certain forms of science, and it just doesn't work. Um, I don't know what will work. In the end, you know, I did write this book, and I didn't write it for no reason. I thought, well, you know, if people see the evidence revolution, they're going to accept it wholeheartedly. I thought, foolish as I was back then, (laughs) that, you know, when this book comes out, we're not going to have a problem with creationism in America. And of course, I was so naive then that I didn't realize that that the hold of religion is far more powerful than anything that evolutionists could say. I did change a fair number of minds. The book was a New York Times bestseller, and it still continues to do well. And I've had a lot of people write me and come up to me and say, you know, I've changed my mind because of you. But 40% of America is millions and millions of people. And if you look at the Gallup Poll statistics on the proportion of creationists, in our country, it's stayed pretty steady at about forty percent for the past um, forty years. What has increased slightly is the number of people who believe in naturalistic evolution. It's increased, I think, from like two percent to twelve percent. So we have wow, more, so you know, low. <laughs> yeah, it's still low. It's like one and eight, right? <laughs> and but that's at the expense of the people in the middle, the people that think, well, evolution did happen, but humans were me an exception those people have dropped off slightly and been, have been made up for by the number of people accepting naturalistic evolution so if you ask me what is the best way to counteract the rejection of evolution by the American public um, and you give me the two alternatives well you teach them about why scientists accept evolution which is what my book is about or you get rid of religion <laughs> it's clear to me manifestly clear that the second alternative, and by getting rid of religion, I don't mean, you know, making it illegal or killing religious people. I mean making this country anti, either anti-theistic or non-theistic. That once that religion goes, so goes the opposition to evolution. And we know this because um, if you look at a correlation between the degree of atheism in countries around the world, with the most atheistic being Iceland Sweden, Norway, Denmark, France, you know, the northern European countries, and their acceptance of evolution. There's a perfect negative, co- well, it's not perfect, but it's a very strong, striking negative correlation. The more religious a country is, the more it rejects evolution. You know, I don't think that's an accident. <laughs> it's because religion blinkers people in such a way that they don't accept evolution. And remember, People get their religion drummed into them before they ever learn anything about evolution. By the time they start learning about evolution, which is probably by the time they're, you know, what, 14 years old or so, they've already had, you know, 12 years of proselytizing for religion beginning when they're children. So by that time, you're almost vaccinated against evolution by religion.
0: Yeah. I should point out to anyone who hasn't read your book that, um, it's a little bit different from uh books like the god delusion in that it's you take each um argument that um each argument that is made by religious people against uh evolution or for the compatibility of religion and science and you demolish each argument one by one um you go into the individual arguments in in some detail um some of the arguments are in themselves quite ludicrous. The arguments that you are debunking, but they're all of them pop, reasonably popular or often heard arguments. So it's that's how the book is structured, and um, it's uh, um, it's it's really delightful to see you demolishing each of the arguments one by one. Um,
1: well, of course, that's because you're on my side. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <I> this, <am. laughs> this book was not received as well as the first one, clearly, because Mm. it's just not on to attack religion in America. If you want to be a popular guy, you just stay away from any attacks on religion. The only person that I can think of who is able to attack religion very effectively, but still retain his popularity, was Carl Sagan. So if you read some of his books, particularly his later books, like A Candle in the Wind, which I think was, written, was put together by his wife, you'll see some strong attacks on religion. But he was dead, for one thing, when that came out. And he was such an amiable, well-spoken fellow that he was able to criticize religion um, without losing popularity. But again, he, he doesn't do it nearly as strongly as somebody like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Christopher Hidston or even I do it. And Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's an atheist, and he'll attack religion once in a while, but you'll see when these guys get on the topic of religion, they tend to get nervous. They tend to shy away from it. Because if you want to be popular, and to be a science popularizer in America, you have to be liked. And to be liked, in general, you have to stay away pretty much from criticizing religion. So that's why people don't do it. You know, I have not much to lose because I'm retired and, uh, you know... I do think that religion is, on balance, a harmful superstition that at one time might have been useful in our species, but is no longer useful. And so I thought, well, I'll just say what I want, you know. And I was attacked even by people who are atheists. A lot of atheists um, are what people that Den and Denik calls believers in belief. That is, they don't believe themselves in any kind of God or supernatural realm. But they think it's good for society as a whole to have that belief because it acts as a sort of social glue. It keeps people moral. I call this the little people's argument because it boils down to the fact that I don't need religion because I'm smart enough to see through it. But everybody else does because, you know, they need it to be moral. They need it to be ethical. They need it to act as a form of social glue to have some place to go on Sunday to form a community of people who care about each other. Um, You know, I don't think that's the case at all, because these Scandinavian countries, Iceland, for example, there's the proportion of uh, people under 25 in Iceland who believe in God is zero percent, zero. Everybody in Iceland under 25 is an atheist. And yet is Iceland falling apart? Um, is it an immoral country full of rapists and murderers? No, I don't think so. Um, do they have, do they need a replacement for church because they don't have a place to go on Sunday? No, they have their network of friends and hobbies and, you know, sports clubs and stuff. Religion is not necessary, much less useful in today's world. And we know this because the whole swath of the world is basically made up of atheists and they're, in many ways, better than the United States, they're more moral. They have better social networks. You know, look at the healthcare in America and the battles to just get everybody universal healthcare. They don't have those in Scandinavia. Everybody's taken care of. So, anyway, I'm ranting, so I'll stop there. So.
0: Um, I a, apart from apart from religion, what do you see as the biggest current threat or threats to the rational worldview?
1: I guess it would be the psychological tendencies of people to believe what they want, something called confirmation bias. Now, that's connected deeply with religion. Religion Confirmation bias is that you accept those things that you think or see about the world that fit in with your worldview. Um, And... Reject those things that don't fit in with your worldview. Now, you can see that religion is an example of—it's institutionalized confirmation bias because you will reject those things that, that don't go along with religion. For example, the, what I call the Achilles heel of religion, um, the existence of physical evil. Why do little kids die of leukemia? Why did tsunamis wipe out whole communities? If God was powerful and loving, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't let it happen. But he does. So God is either largely impotent or he doesn't care. Okay, so to me, any rational person, that argument itself should dispel religion. You know, but it doesn't. (laughs) You can see religious people turning mental gymnastics to try to explain why God allows little kids to die of leukemia. But that's, Just one form of confirmation bias. There are other forms of confirmation bias, too. I mean, you can see it, for example, in the rejection of the vaccines, which is not completely, it's somewhat connected with religion, but not completely. Um, People don't want to believe that scientists, and this is sort of rejection of the scientific method, that scientists are some kind of evil cabal of people that don't really know what they're talking about, And they're somehow trying to inject microchips into our arms by making vaccinations. And they'll say, and if you read these websites or any conspiracy theory website like that, it's full of confirmation bias. You know, Um, and, you know, that's a form of faith, confirmation bias. And that's the biggest enemy of, of rationality and science in the world today. And it's, to me, why religion is so invidious. Faith is simply belief without evidence, more or less. Uh, you can make it fancier than that if you're a theologian, but that's basically what it comes down to. I think Mark Twain said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. <laughs> and, and faith yeah. is what religion props up, and its faith is exactly what we do not need to make our world a better place. We need facts. We need rationality. We need reason. And I think that's the point that Steve Pinker has been, trying to make in his last two big books um you know the enlightenment now and the better angels of our nature books which by the way i recommend very highly
0: hmm. me too jerry is there anything that i um haven't asked you that you hoped that i might ask uh, or any point that you haven't been able to make that you would like to make
1: not really i i don't set out in interviews to try to get points across. That's what politicians do on television. <laughs> they'll, they'll ask, you know, Biden, you know, uh, you know, when are you going to go to the border? And I'll say, well, well, actually Kamala Harris. And they will say, well, we've been to Europe. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's not the way I conduct my interviews. So
0: I think um, I'd like to end by just reading another little passage uh, from your book. Um, just to give people um, a, a feel for it um i think i'm going to go with one of i'll take a passage from towards the end sorry by your book i, I mean actually what um why evolution is true in this case okay I'm, I'm going to just read a short passage from why evolution is true which i think also answers some of the objections uh, that religious people have to evolution um There is no reason, then, to see ourselves as marionettes dancing on the strings of evolution. Yes, certain parts of our behavior may be genetically encoded, instilled by natural selection in our savanna dwelling ancestors. But genes aren't destiny. One lesson that all geneticists know, but which doesn't seem to have permeated the consciousness of the public, is that genetic does not mean unchangeable. All sorts of environmental factors can affect the expression of genes. Juvenile diabetes, for example, is a genetic disease, but its harmful effects can be largely eliminated by small doses of insulin and environmental interaction. My poor eyesight, which runs in the family, is no encumbrance thanks to glasses. Likewise, we can curtail our voracious appetites for chocolate and meat with some willpower in the help of Weight Watchers' meetings and the institution of marriage has gone a long way toward curbing the promiscuous behavior of men. The world still teems with selfishness, immorality, and injustice. But look elsewhere, and you'll also find innumerable acts of kindness and altruism. There may be elements of both behaviors that come from our evolutionary heritage, but these acts are largely matters of choice, not genes. Giving to charity volunteering to eradicate disease in poor countries, fighting fires at immense personal risk, none of these acts could have been instilled in us directly by evolution. And as the years pass, although horrors like ethnic cleansing in Rwanda and the Balkans are still with us, we see an increasing sense of justice sweeping through the world. In Roman times, some of the most sophisticated minds that ever existed found it an excellent afternoon's entertainment to sit down and watch humans literally fighting for their lives against each other or against wild animals. There is now no culture on the planet that would not think this barbaric. Similarly, human sacrifice was once an important part of many societies. That, too, has thankfully disappeared. In many countries, the equality of men and women is now taken for granted. Richer nations are becoming aware of their obligations to help rather than exploit poorer ones. We worry more about how we treat animals. None of this has anything to do with evolution, for the change is happening far too fast to be caused by our genes. It is clear, then, that whatever genetic heritage we have, it is not a straitjacket that traps us forever in the beastly ways of our forebears. Evolution tells us where we came from, not where we can go.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, when I hear that, I think, A, did I really write that? And B, I'm not sure I could write it again. (laughs) But yeah, that that sums up my sentiments pretty much.
0: Thank you so much, Jerry. It's been an honor to have you on the podcast.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening, everyone, and have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.